Before the show, a reminder that you can find more of our reporting on the NPR One app, along with a custom playlist of NPR stories and all your favorite podcasts. One of those podcasts should definitely be NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's a lot like our show, if we only talked about movies, TV, books, and music, which sounds really fun. Check it out on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast for Tuesday, November 8th, Election Day. <laughs> oh, man. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And my entire countenance is smiling. <laughs> it just feels good that we made it. So we're taping this early because we got to rest up for the big night. We'll be up well into the early morning looking at those results. So Election Day... Historically, the candidates lay low. I mean, that's the thing about Election Day is in some ways it's the easiest day of the campaign, right? You know, everything you could have possibly done at this point has been done. And the work that's left on Election Day is often left to ground organizers, local field staff. In some ways, the candidates, not just in the presidential race, but in congressional races and in governor's races, Election Day is kind of chill. They hang out with their families. They kind of try and stay relaxed. You know, sometimes they work on their speeches, Uh, one version of each speech, (laughs) depends on which one you want to look at. But it is not historically a big campaign day. It's a big organization day. So we have kind of said all that we can possibly say at this point. But we do have something special for you all to listen to today because, as we said, we have a long night ahead. But before we do that, I want to take a little moment to acknowledge a milestone. A year ago tomorrow, we put out our first trailer for the podcast, promising to take you all the way to Election Day. More than 150 episodes later, we are here. It's been so much fun, so much work. Uh, And if you want to support that work, nothing can help us more than for you to give a few dollars to your local NPR member station. You can find your station at npr.org slash stations. Tell them we sent you. Uh, That support is what allows us to keep doing what we do. And thank you, thank you, thank you all so much for a great year. What are your thoughts on this year as it wraps up, guys? It's been amazing, particularly as the podcast has gone on and how loyal and passionate the people that listened. I mean, I think that's one of the things I will remember most about this. And also, especially in the home stretch, how much people seemed genuinely like concerned yes. and thinking about us and the, all the like notes and things we've received in the mail and the thoughtfulness of our listeners and the people that write us has been very encouraging in a year in which I think there's been so much negativity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all. I mean, I don't think we can thank you enough for the treats you send us or the kind tweets or even, frankly, I've gotten some handwritten cards and letters. That all means so much. And, you know, I I concur. I think this election cycle has been at times really emotionally draining. I mean, if we're really sort of honest and we sit here, we've, I think, seen some really ugly and dark sides to, you know, the political process and how different folks and different members of the American body politic feel about each other. And so it's really nice to know that, hey, there's still some good spirits and positivity out there. (laughs) So thank you all. And I think what I've really enjoyed the most about the podcast has been that, you know, we sit in these little cubicles. So Sam sits behind me. Scott Detrow sits to one side of me. And a lot of times when big news happens or something happens, we all kind of yell at each other across the cubicle (laughs) mini walls. And I feel like being in this studio sometimes, and I hope that we have done this for you all, is kind of getting a glimpse of what it's like when we're like, hey, Sam, did you see this news? And having a chance to sort of, you know, 
talk to each other in a way in which we actually do talk to each other around the newsroom. Yeah. And I love that, like, every episode, no matter how good or bad the news, we find something to laugh about and take joy in. And I really appreciate that, given the craziness of this year. To be fair, this is not a goodbye episode. <laughs> Might have sounded like that for a bit. The podcast, of course, continues post-election day because we'll have a lot to talk about then, too. All right, stay tuned. Quick break. We'll be right back. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, making getting a mortgage more convenient than ever before. Get approved for a mortgage online in minutes using your phone or tablet and ditch the stacks of financial documents by using cutting-edge technology. You can also safely share bank statements and pay stubs with the touch of a button. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash nprpolitics. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Quick reminder to listen to NPR's live election coverage tonight. You can hear everyone from the podcast on your local public radio station. And we'll have an episode for you first thing tomorrow with all the results. So, like we said, we thought it'd be fun to give you something else to listen to today. A break from some of the more serious election news. Our friends Glenn Weldon and Stephen Thompson at the great NPR podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. They sat down recently to talk about 2016 and late night comedy. It's a great chat, and hopefully after you hear this, you'll check out more of their episodes. Okay, here's Stephen and Glenn. Asma, Sue, let's go do election night. Let's uh, do it. Uh, 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 Snaps uh. all around. Yeah, yeah. Hello, NPR Politics listeners. I'm Stephen Thompson. I'm a writer and editor with NPR Music, and I am here with Glenn Weldon, who writes about books and comic books for the NPR website. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Stephen. Now, as Sam mentioned, we are panelists on Pop Culture Happy Hour, a podcast about TV, movies, books, and more. We usually come to you as a four-person panel hosted by Linda Holmes, but she is out this week, so Glenn and I thought we would gather just the two of us to discuss the intersection of politics and late-night comedy. So you may have heard that there's an election coming up, and we can't have an election without an onslaught of political comedy and satire. You've got to name just one example, Saturday Night Live, which has been doing it for more than 40 years. And in 2016 alone, SNL has been able to break through the din of late night comedy going viral with its uh, debate segments, the ones with Kate McKinnon and Alec Baldwin as Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and just recently in a segment called Black Jeopardy. Now, Glenn, you are a fan of this Black Jeopardy segment. I very much am because it's an outlier, right? SNL historically has had a pretty broad approach to political satire, uh, which you can't have because satire needs to be pointed, needs to have a point of view. 
They concentrate on their political impressions, which are not necessarily apolitical, but they often are. Right. They're just taking something about a person and, and amplifying it. But the political impressions that break out are those that actually have a point of view. So if you remember the Bush versus Dukakis debate sketch where Dana Carvey was doing his very good Bush impression, the thing that broke out was the Dukakis moment uh, where John Lovitz played Michael Dukakis saying, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. So let's just stay the course and keep on track. Stay the course. <laughs> You still have uh, 50 seconds left, Mr. Vice President. Well, let me just sum up. On track, stay the course, a thousand points of light, stay the course. Mm -hmm. Governor Dukakis rebuttal. I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. (laughs) That actually had a point. That is not something that SNL generally has, especially with the celebrity impressions. I mean, Kate McKinnon is doing a great job as Clinton. Alec Baldwin's doing a great job as Trump. Nailing the characters, you do see something behind Kate McKinnon's eyes, a certain mm-hmm. desperation, which uh, is a little bit political. It's almost a statement. Right. But the Black Jeopardy sketch stands out because it actually says something. It mm-hmm. made an observation. Finding the common ground between the black community and uh, the Trump voter in a way that was kind of gentle but pointed. Let's go to they out here saying for eight. Okay, the answer there. They out here saying that every vote counts. Oh, Doug again. What is, come on, they already decided who wins even before it happens. Yes! Yes! And the button on that sketch, the last moment, was really the thing that actually brought it all together. Let's take a look at our final Jeopardy category. Lives that matter. Well, it was good while it lasted, Doug. I know, I got a lot to say about this. Yeah, I'm sure you do. When we come back, we'll play the national anthem and just see what the hell happens. We'll be right back. Okay, so you've got SNL, you've got your late night network talk shows, uh, you've got more recent upstarts like Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and this year what you don't have, for the most part, he's made occasional appearances, is, is John Stewart, who stepped down from The Daily Show last year making way for Trevor Noah. Yeah, and he's created a vacuum, John Stewart, by his absence. And uh, a lot of people say they, they miss him terribly. Half the country misses him terribly, <laughs> right. I, would, I would say, because he was a voice for uh, a progressive voice. I think when we're talking about comedy or satire, it's a lot easier for progressives to make comedy uh, than it is necessarily for conservatives. Sure. Conservatives can, but I think progressives have the wind at their back because satire exists to challenge the status quo, not necessarily to upend it, but certainly to question it. Sure. And the conservative principle is the status quo is the status quo. Well, you you have challenging of the status quo on conservative sides as well. Exactly. There's a long American tradition of holding very noble ideals, uh, but there's a longer American tradition of challenging those ideals. This goes back to the comedy of Mark Twain and Will Rogers and Andy Griffith and the Piverly Hillbillies. It's possible to make comedy from a conservative point of view if if it's about just plain folks. We are practical and your ideals are unrealistic and we are going to puncture the stuffed shirts we're going to uh, go after these people who hold these unrealistic beliefs yeah, you, you, you populism versus elitism exactly and that's why there's some wind at the back of, of conservatives now because there is a liberal elite and uh, a lot of people in writing rooms uh, of many of these shows uh, come from the same background. There was an article by Hank Stuver in the Washington Post on November 1st, which pointed out that both Samantha Bee and John Oliver, who are doing great jobs and are both coming from a left of center 
place. Right. And both have a certain sense of dudgeon, certain sure. certain outrage it, that it, animates it, them. And there's and there's there's definitely a tone. Um, John Stewart had this as well of the of exasperation. Exactly. Both of those writers' rooms came up with pretty much the same Waffle House joke to stand in for rural America. Right. Uh, so they're using the same metaphors because they're coming from the same place. There are several areas in this country where the only accessible hospital is a Catholic facility. Catholic hospitals are kind of like the Waffle House of medical care. If Waffle House got $115 billion a year in federal funds. Because even in a rural area, alternative pain treatments should be at least as easy to find as Waffle Houses, which, like heroin, are both hazardous to your health and dangerously addictive. And, and to put it more so there are some voices that I miss. I miss Larry Wilmore. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I like that Samantha Bee's on the air because she's coming at it from a, a woman's perspective. She's bringing a woman's perspective. Oh, and so many of these late night hosts, I mean, it's all dudes. It's all dudes. Her. It's all dudes. And, uh, and Chelsea Handler and is, Chelsea is Handler. floating around. Right. Uh, what I love about the John Oliver show last week tonight is that wh- when he wades into politics, he can wade into it. He did a whole segment about uh, looking at the third party candidates. But he loves to spend time on not necessarily politics, but policies. Yeah. By giving attention to giant swaths of the American life that are just don't get any kind of attention. And he does adopt this explainer tone, talking about things like opioid and school segregation and sex education, but he's doing it in an animated way. He's giving you the medicine uh, with a little bit yeah, of sugar. With, with jokes, yes. you know, where you expect there to be jokes. Exactly. You make an interesting point about John Oliver. I think John Oliver and Samantha Bee to an extent, first of all, they're natural successors to John Stewart because they all have that Daily Show pedigree, mm-hmm. but they also fall into the category of this like comedians with a conscience, right? Like Jon Stewart got so much media coverage as like the conscience of America and he's this voice in the media. But it also had this sort of scolding tone to it where where Jon Stewart was presented as like comedy's moral authority. And I, I wonder... Like, are we missing that, or is that even necessary? Well, it's gotten a lot more diffuse. Uh, there's a lot more white dudes out there <laughs> doing comedy <laughs> yes. now. Uh, Seth Meyers is reverting back to his old SNL Weekend Update mm-hmm. uh, mode with these uh, Closer Look segments. And I think both you and I, Stephen, share the fact that we don't watch these shows. We wait for them to kind of bubble up on mm-hmm. social media to get that kind of attention, or for somebody to tell us, oh, you should have seen X last night. Yeah. That happens with Samantha Bee a lot. That happens with, uh, certainly, John Oliver a lot. Doesn't happen with Trevor Noah a great deal. Right. And that's interesting to me because that guy's great. And I just watched the uh, election special where they kind of combine their year-long coverage of, of election stuff and solid jokes in there. Good stuff. He's a very genial guy, right? right? And there's not that animated sense of outrage. There is just this uh, slightly sardonic, uh, not exasperation, but just what's going on? And that doesn't necessarily have the the energy that's going to let it escape what you mentioned before, the sort of din of all this coverage all the time. Well, yeah, and I, I think there is a, a, a loudness that comes through in a lot of the clips that wind up getting written about. You know, like you were saying, these shows get broken out into into clips that pop up in articles. Look what Seth Meyers said about this. Look what John Oliver said about this. Look what Samantha Bee said about this. And I think, like you said, that that, that genial quality sometimes makes it harder to like feel a need to write an article about this amazing rant on The Daily Show. Right. And there are, uh, again, most of these voices are center-left voices. There are, Dennis Miller was a voice from the right, a humorous voice from the right, uh, doesn't have a show right now. Bill Maher was historically coming from a libertarian point of view. Now he's gone so... very left libertarian. It's very left libertarian and really uh, hardcore anti-Trump. The Greg Gutfeld show on Fox, I I watched a few episodes of this, trying to figure out why this guy hasn't bubbled up in the same way that others have. And I think we've got a clip from a segment where he's talking about current events. He's talking about Hillary Clinton email stuff. 
that anger is there, but I don't think the jokes necessarily are. So is this scandal a big deal? Who cares? The left made a career out of turning molehills into mountains. Remember Romney's binders full of women? The left brutalized him over that, and he turned the other cheek, and he lost. Maybe 2016 is the year the right stopped turning cheeks and instead kicked some ass. See, uh, th again, Anger, just right. like, just as much as Samantha Bee has sort of a blistering take on things. Sure. But one of the things you notice is that line was red meat for his audience. You'd expect, and this is another thing that Hank Stuver pointed out in his article, that this is an echo chamber, right? Yeah. So when a host like that delivers a line like that, it's just applause as opposed to laughter. That crowd didn't necessarily go with him right. where, where he was going. I noticed that. Yeah. Uh, and what a variety of reason. I think for The Daily Show, you have people waiting months for tickets for <laughs> The Gutfeld Show. I, I don't know, but you might have people out on time Square saying, you, you guys like comedy? You know, I don't know exactly how they get their studio audiences, sure. but that's a marked difference. The other marked difference is both Samantha Bee and John Oliver uh, have dispensed with the notion of guests. Mm -hmm. You'll never see the third lead from NCIS telling a wacky story about her Mexican vacation because nobody cares. Right. Uh, some of the hosts like uh, Seth Meyers are still wedded to that old school format. Colbert also still yeah. wedded to that format. So it's an uneasy alliance. Well, yeah, and I wanted to bring up the, the, the difference between political satire and political interview. Right. So you have all these late night talk shows, your, your, your Jimmy Kimmel, your Jimmy Fallon, your Stephen Colbert. Your other Jimmies. Your, all your Jimmies, your James Corden. And they're mixing comedy with these interview spots that often when they're interviewing celebrities, they're promotional in nature. And when they're interviewing politicians, they're promotional in nature. Right. And it feels like a very uneasy fit if you have scathing political commentary over here and then you have an interview with the person you're doing scathing political commentary on, that is a very uneasy thing. And I think the notion of shows that dispense with guests have a way of getting around that as opposed to there's an episode of Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show in September where he interviews Donald Trump and Jimmy Fallon has like has his Trump impersonation. But then he's he's sitting there face to face with Trump. And there's a moment in it where he like tussles Trump's hair. It's like, can I can I touch your hair? And then he, then he tussles Trump's hair. I just wanted to know if there's something we could do that's just not presidential, really, or something that that we can do now that we're just both civilians like. <laughs> Like what? This is... Can I, I'm not liking the sound of this. Go ahead. Can I mess your hair up? And Jimmy Fallon got absolutely eviscerated for this right. in the press. First of all, Jimmy Fallon is not where I necessarily go for my humor with teeth. Yeah. That's, that's, not his, that's not his thing. That, that show is whimsical and playful and light. And there have definitely, I've seen interviews with, with Hillary Clinton where there's been this very, very, very light touch to it. And it just feels, it doesn't feel of a piece with shows that are trying to dispense satire. Yeah, I got to say, I was a little surprised at the vehemence uh, with which Fallon was attacked for that. I mean, it was dumb, but I mean, we're lucky that he didn't play Twister with him. You know, I mean, like that's, <laughs> it's, it's, that's the level of that show. That's what that guy does. Right. Uh, and he's not going to challenge anybody and he's not going to be the place where you go for the hard interview. It's, it's, he's doing the same interview, the same kind of jokey thing he would do with anybody else. I, I get it. Uh, and in a hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized election season, uh, that thing does stand out. But I mean, that's 
Fallon's going to Fallon. <laughs> and on November 9th, November 10th, we will be very, very happy to yeah. have that playfulness, that lightness has such an important place in the late night landscape, which can be very acerbic and very dark. Mm-hmm. But it's it's weird. I think it works a lot better in December than it does in September That's in, in, in 2016. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of the show. You can find us at facebook.com slash PCHH or on Twitter at PCHH. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, man. And thanks to all of you for listening. All right. That was Stephen Thompson and Glenn Weldon from Pop Culture Happy Hour. We love them all, including the great and my friend, Linda Holmes. Thanks to everyone at that show for their support this year. We'll talk to you in tomorrow's episode with the results of election night. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter, and thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 